When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. Welcome back to Excitable Boys our mini-series that takes a look back at the dirty life and times of Warren Zevon. In our last episode, we discussed Warren's 1989 cyberpunk concept album, the only official release of the demos he recorded with R.E.M. under the name Hindu Love Gods, his 1991 acoustic live album, his two 90s studio releases, and the crushing commercial failure that each and every one of these projects was cursed with. Today we pick up with Warren at the dawn of the 21st century, as he bounced back after a five-year hiatus with the release of one of his best albums, Life Will Kill Ya, in January 2000. Yeah, yeah, my shit's fucked up. It has to happen to the best of us. The rich folks suffer like the rest of us. It'll happen to you. Life Will Kill Ya was received very well by critics, and even enjoyed a level of commercial success that had evaded Warren since the mid-80s. Now, it certainly wasn't topping any charts, but it proved that Warren's career was still viable. Warren toured as a solo act to promote Life Will Kill Ya, but he soon got back to work on his next project, which would be called My Rides Here. I'm the one who always told you you were smart. You broke my heart into smithereens, and that took genius. My Rides Here was released in the spring of 2002, and it included a number of collaborations with various authors and writers that Warren admired, including Hunter S. Thompson. And it wasn't just some authors. Even David Letterman is here. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? It's somebody. What else can a farm boy from Canada do? It's somebody. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? It's somebody. Although an interesting project, this album would ultimately serve as a bit of a backslide, both commercially and critically. And when his label declined to pay for a touring band, Warren refused to go out on the road at all. Instead, he wanted to move on quickly to the next project. Well, I went to the doctor. I said I'm feeling kind of rough. 
Let me break it to you, son. Your shit's fucked up. Unfortunately, whatever his original plans for that next project were would have to change, as Warren received some horrible news on August 28th, 2002. And what was the diagnosis? It's, uh, it's uh, lung cancer that's spread. Warren Zevon was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and was initially given just three months to live. His reaction to this news would say more about him as an artist than any song lyric. When faced with the brutal ticking clock of impending mortality, Zevon immediately went into, in his words, showbiz mode and called in every favor he possibly could to put together one last album. The end result was some of the best work of his entire career. Some days I feel like my shadow's casting me. Some days the sun don't shine. While he was working on this project, he would pay a final visit to The Late Show with David Letterman, in which he discussed the diagnosis, played a few songs, and expressed his appreciation for all the advocacy that Dave had done over the years on behalf of Warren's music. You know, Dave's the best friend my music has ever had. The Wind was released on August 26, 2003, a full year after his initial diagnosis. He simply refused to go quietly into the night. Instead, he partnered with Bruce Springsteen, Don Henley, Joe Walsh, Tom Petty, Emmylou Harris, Jackson Brown, and several others to put together one of the most impressive collections of music from his whole career. Disorder in the house There's a flaw in the system And the fly in the ointment is gonna bring the whole thing down the wind landed higher on the charts than almost everything he had done previously. It won him two Grammy Awards, and it also served as perhaps the greatest example ever of an artist saying farewell to his fans and peers. And I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. It's hard not to get choked up while listening to the wind. Zevon has delivered beautiful yet heartbreaking lyrics his whole career, and it's no different here. But this is not a joyless affair. Warren's rock star buddies helped him show that despite it all, he was still having fun and making the most of the time he had left. Wanna go home? spent the final months of his life putting together one of his greatest works. And that really says all you need to know about Warren's dedication to his craft. He was a songwriter, and one of the best to ever do it. Warren's been gone for 20 years now, but his music will live forever. I can only hope that this miniseries we've done over these past few months has encouraged some of you out there to explore or perhaps revisit his impressive yet largely underappreciated catalog. In any case, this episode will serve as the conclusion of our Excitable Boys miniseries. 
but Chris and I will return with a new songwriter retrospective at some point in the future. To anyone who's listened, I can't thank you enough. And I also need to say thank you to my reliable co-host, Chris, who embraced this project with far more enthusiasm than I ever expected. Thanks, buddy. This has been a blast. So without further ado, let's take a look back at the final months of Warren's life and career. Get yourself one more big dish of beef chow mein, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle Warren's music and stories from this era. This is Excitable Boys Part 4, Warren Zevon in the 2000s. Well, he's just an excitable boy. Pleasantly reported some news about Warren Zevon being nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we mentioned how he was doing in the fan vote, and at the time, that was awfully promising. Well, since then, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame reminded us who they are, and they snubbed Warren, as well as Cindy Lauper and Iron Maiden, who are also doing pretty well in the fan vote. The only person from the fan vote who got in was George Michael, and George Michael was inducted alongside Kate Bush, Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Willie Nelson, Rage Against the Machine, and The Spinners. Yes. And of course, outside of Rage Against the Machine, none of them are actually rock musicians, but we won't get into that. (laughs) Well, sure, but I think a lot of us who get irritated by their decisions still operate under the idea that they're celebrating what we think is rock and roll. And they've redefined it. It means something very different to them. They unveiled a new mission statement earlier this year, and I will read uh, part of it. Part of it says, quote, Born from the collision of rhythm and blues, country and gospel, rock and roll is a spirit that is inclusive and ever-changing. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame celebrates the sound of youth culture, and honors the artists whose music connects us all. I guess I can understand that it's more of a celebration of American popular music. I think they're kind of done with their classic rock face. I think pretty much every classic rock artist that was going to get in is already in. Well, let's hope that that's not the case for Zevon, because goddammit, I want Zevon in. Did you not hear me say youth culture? <laughs> when was Warren Zevon ever... A part of youth culture. Even in his heyday, that didn't apply. I think David Letterman said it best. He said that Pete Rose has a better chance at getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame than Warren does at this point. <laughs> I saw that interview, and it's absolutely hilarious and probably accurate. Do you have any last parting thoughts for the Rock Hall before we move on? Yeah, let's fuck those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, let's pick up where we left off last time as far as where Warren's career was. We were coming off basically a commercial low point with the release of the 1995 album Mutineer. That album didn't sell really anything at all, but you and I both liked it. In fact, you were pretty over the moon about it. Just to set the stage of where Warren saw his career at this point from his perspective... 
A diary entry of his from December 8th, 1998 reads, quote, My career is about as promising as a Civil War leg wound. <laughs> Jesus, that's funny. Jesus, that's funny. Yeah. Who else says that? And it wasn't for anybody. And it's, that, yeah, that was for himself. He wrote that in, in a diary. That's something he just, that's something he came up with. That's great. Yeah. So here's another diary entry. This is from a, just a couple of months later on April 4th, 1999. Agent with a good idea. I can open for old opening acts of mine. Sure. Headache coming back. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> There's also the thing I like about him is there's such a there's a level of self awareness with Zevon as well Mm -hmm. that I I truly appreciate. The guy looked in the mirror. Yeah. (laughs) He did not take his agent up on this, so you know he held on to his dignity there. So you were extremely high on the album Mutineer that we talked about in the last episode. But since we put that episode out and we've been listening to Warren's most recent music, your enthusiasm for a different album overshined even uh, Mutineer. And that was Life Will Kill Ya, which was released in 2000. Now, I know you have been chomping at the bit to tell me about how great this album is, but let's uh, set this up here first a little bit. Firstly, he had been off for a couple of years between these records, and that was kind of good because that gave him some time to work on the songs he had, really refine them down to what he wanted them to be, and also gave like the music industry a chance to miss him a little bit. So he signed a new record deal with Artemis Records, and unlike the the last couple of CDs he put out, he actually recorded Life Will Kill Ya in a studio, <laughs> you know, with other musicians. It wasn't the star-studded affairs that his early records were, but it was actually professionally done in a studio, which I think was for the better, because I don't know if I like Life Will Kill Ya as much as you do, but I definitely prefer it over the last couple of records. So, what's your initial thought on the album Life Will Kill Ya? I don't know that there's a bad song on the entire album. Yeah, uh, among the tracks there that I really liked was Porcelain Monkey, For My Next Trick, I'll Need a Volunteer, Dirty Little Religion, Fistful of Rain, and his cover of Back in the High Life, which was originally recorded by Steve Winwood. That is a bizarre choice. So first of all, that's a phenomenal song. Yes. Let's rewind real quick and just say, finally he made a good song that had rain in the title. (laughs) He's got like three songs that suck that have rain in the title. And finally he made a good one. His Fistful of Rain is fucking great. Like, it's it's a great track. Grab a hole. Yes, I like that one quite a bit. So what are some of the songs, besides Fistful of Rain, that really stand out to you? I was in the house when the house burned down. I mean... Oh, yeah. That one's one of those classic Zevon titles. He, he's very good. He's like uh, Bob Dylan and John Prine in yeah. the sense that the man can title a fucking song. Sure. I mean, my shit's fucked up is probably... Yes! That's become my anthem. (laughs) (laughs) Is my shit's fucked up 
Zivon's quintessential song title. Sort of in the same way that, you know, only Bob Dylan could have a song called Things Have Changed or Everything Is Broken and it's not like pathetic. It's like a, it's a serious statement. Yeah, I think so. When you listen to the song, it's just so accurate. It feels so real. Yeah. Uh, my shit's fucked up. Uh, should oh well. You, what is it? You you wake up every day and you want to want to die, and you start to cry. But you just can't quit. Let me break it to you, son. It's that fucked up shit. Like it's the song. The song is so dirty and true and gritty and real. The title matches the lyrics with that one, and yeah, it's very much like like a songwriter's anthem. It's not built like a sing-along anthem, but it is one that someone who's going through a hard time, they hear that song, and it's just like, holy shit, this guy hits it. This guy knows what's going on. It's it cathartic as fuck. It's yeah. cathartic as fuck. Like, you listen to it, there's no, I, 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 I can't think of another song that's more cathartic in that way, honestly. What did you think of his cover of Back in the High Life? Oh, it's phenomenal. And he changes it so much from the... I mean, the Winwood version is very much a... Um, it's like optimistic and uplifting. Yeah, I'm back in the high life again. His version is very much this sort of... It's not sad in the sense of being, like, pessimistic. Right. But it has a certain level of, I guess, like what we would call melancholia that's not present in the Winwood version. And I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And I'll drink and dance with one hand free let the world back into me Oh, I'll be a sight to see Back in the heart Again I get the sense that the Winwood version is coming from a guy who is back in the high life. He's had his comeback, he was down in the dirt, and he's made it. And the song is a triumphant celebration. Whereas the Zivon version is a guy who has not yet had that comeback. He's still in the gutter, but he's working on it. He's on his way. He sees clearly what he has to do to get back to that good place, but he's not quite there. So it's a song more of hope and optimism instead of triumph and optimism because he hasn't quite got to that point yet. That's my read of it. No, that's great. And I think what's illustrative about it is the idea that through the interpretation of lyrics, you can change a song because you're right. The Wimwood one is very positive. Mm -hmm. Whereas Zivon, when he says something to the effect of, we'll be back in the high life again, that's future tense. That's not present tense. You can take it either way. It's beautiful, I think, the way Zivon did it. I, I, I truly loved it. It's the kind of thing that, like, validates doing covers at all. Because I don't think a cover is worthwhile unless you're recontextualizing doing something new with it. If it's just a nice performance of a song that's already been recorded in a nice way, then you're just borrowing a song. And that usually doesn't do a lot for me. That's why I'm, I wasn't crazy about the Terry Clark version of Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, <laughs> yeah. because I had heard that version from Linda Ronstadt. And she did recontextualize it. Ronstadt did a wonderful version of it. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Are there any other songs that you specifically want to highlight as the stuff that really did it for you? I know you're just big on the record as a whole. Uh, phenomenal. I, I mean, Don't Let Us Get Sick is beautiful. 
There's a premonition in that song. He, I think in, intuitively somehow he knew something was going on. Yeah. How could he have not? How could he be making a song like this? Unless that's just his entire, I guess maybe that's just his entire like world outlook. <laughs> and so maybe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I mean, that's a beautiful song. You know, it's Don't Let's Get Sick. Don't, don't let us get old. Let don't get let us get old. stupid. Don't all right. Blows my mind. There's something about that that lyric right. that really, truly affects me. But I will say ourselves to know yes. is absolutely the best American popular music song about the Crusades I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I remember listening to that and I was just like, wait a second. Yeah. I remember this from seventh grade history. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, we left Constantinople in 1099. Yeah, like I remember that date from a test yeah. I took in yeah. you know, 2003 or something. That's funny. Well, you know, the nice thing about this one that is in stark difference to Mutineer is that this album actually enjoyed a little success. People bought this CD as opposed to uh, Mutineer, which I believe was shipped directly to the uh, used (laughs) CD pile. (laughs) What's the quote about Mutineer? I I made it as a a love letter to my fans, none of whom bought it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this actually landed uh, low on the Billboard charts, but the fact that it got on the charts at all was something he had not had since Sentimental Hygiene, which is like... 87. Oof. So quite the dry spell for him there. Let's just wrap it up, I think, with this. I just I will say this. None of his shit actually really fucking sold. Yeah. I mean, Life Will Kill It was not like the big hit of the... I mean, this oh. is... Come on. This is, a, this is a 50-something-year-old <laughs> washed-up rocker, uh, you know... In 2000. In 2000. Yeah, it, it, it sold well for him, which is <laughs> yeah. always the ever-present asterisk. We're going to take a quick break. So just sit tight, and we'll be back with more of the story of Warren Zevon. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So it didn't sell well enough for his new label to send him out on the road (laughs) with a full band behind him. He, in an effort to keep his label happy, went out on the road as a solo artist like he did throughout the 90s. And, and supported the album in that way. And once he got off the road, he got right back to work with a follow-up, which was called My Rides Here. And that was released in May 2002. Now, the interesting thing about this CD is that it's kind of a return to what he was doing in the 90s in the sense that he didn't record it in the studio. He right. recorded it at his home studio, and that was his decision, which I got to say, I found that to be a little interesting. I don't think it's as strong of a CD as Life Will Kill You. There's a couple of tracks here that I like, but this one is closer to sort of the stuff he was doing in the early 90s that I'm kind of so-so on. This is my least favorite of his albums, probably. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't hate it, but it's easily my least favorite of his albums. Would you describe it as a firm meh record? I don't know if it's meh. I could listen to it. Yeah. The mere fact that uh, Hunter S. Thompson is on it yeah. <laughs> is phenomenal for me. I love Hunter S. Thompson. I think Genius is a beautiful song. I love yeah. Genius. And, and I will say the Hunter S. Thompson track is actually quite good. The You're, you're a whole different person when you're scared is just a great phrase. Definitely a Hunter S. Thompson phrase. I think that's not that's not Zevon. That's that's Thompson doing that one. I was just gonna say who came up with that title. Oh, it's, I'm a, yeah, it's Hunter S. Thompson for sure. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> he had the whole thing with that, and even in the in the lyrics, the Kingdom of Fear. That was Hunter S. Thompson's one of his la- one of his last books. I think it's the last one I bought. I mean, that was his whole thing. This idea that we're we're governed by fear, and uh, it's a, it's a very interesting album in some ways. I think David Letterman correctly acknowledged the fact that he absolutely ruined uh, Hit Somebody. Hit Somebody. The hockey song. He, it's, it's a good song. It really is a, lyrically a good yes. song. It's fun. Yeah. But for some reason, Letterman going, Hit Somebody is so dumb. It just sounds so dumb. It takes me out of it so badly. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? Hit somebody. What else can a farm boy from Canada do? Hit somebody. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? Hit somebody. What else can a farm boy from Canada do? I tend to agree. My frustration with it is... I see the idea there, and I think it could have worked. But it's the same track of Letterman saying hit somebody again and again and again. And it's just the slightly wrong inflection. If he changed his inflection a little bit, and if he didn't just say hit somebody every single time, like if on the third time he shouted it, he would have said, come on, hit somebody, gave it a little variation. 
made it sound like he was actually in the stands at a game shouting at the players, I think that might have worked. But as it played out, as it is on the record, no, I don't. I, I don't think it's very good. I give him credit for acknowledging that on the record that he ruined that song. Oh yeah, well Letterman. <laughs> like, Letterman, I like that. Letterman's very clear-headed about yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, his yeah, place yeah. in the world. I, I don't even think he would have done it if not for the fact that he loves Warren Zevon more than he loves anyone else on Earth. <laughs> Well, we'll get to that, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about yeah. that. In just a few that is a weird here. thing, though. He does seem to have a preternatural love for that man, doesn't he? I, and I will say, because of that fandom appreciation, the relationship between those guys, I don't really like the song, but I like that Letterman is on a Zevon song because I know how much those guys admire each other, and I know that Letterman's not a musical artist, so he wouldn't really be on a yeah. CD, but. To express that friendship, that partnership, they they did the song together. And look, yeah, it's not the worst song in the world. It's it's just stupid. But look, it's just it, these two guys having a little fun. I don't think the song is actually stupid. Oh, I actually oh, yes. li- I actually like the entire song. I just literally I just hate Letterman going hit somebody. <laughs> yes. What do you think of the opening track, Sacrificial Lamps? It's fine. To me, it sounded like a hair metal song. <laughs> It sounded like yeah, the, the CD starts, and I like perk up. They're like, "Whoa, Zevon have like a hard rock phase." <laughs> I mean, it's there's nothing here I really love. What about the? I don't know if it's right to say, but like the Irish folk style songs on McGillicuddy's Reeks. Oh, and even Lord Byron's Luggage. Yeah, I did not not enjoy them because we've seen that style of songwriting in not just Dylan's discography. But Springsteen had the record in 2012 where a bunch of songs very much have that Irish folk sing-along style. I will say this. Springsteen, when he does it, I love Springsteen. You know this. Yep. We both do. We sure do. When he does it, it seems forced. I will say this for Zevon is that I think his entire discography has that feel, even when it doesn't have the actual trappings or affectations of sort of the Irish musical style. Do Um, these songs sound out of time? Because that's why we liked When the Ships Come In from Dylan. That's why we liked that track, because it felt out of time. Did you think that was the same thing here? I think literally everything Zevon has produced has that quality. Yes, Leave My Monkey Alone is a timeless... Except for, you know what, first of all, you put that on your your damn, like, top five or whatever of that decade. That's your problem. That song, okay. You are going to blow a stack when we get to my top five. (laughs) Scrap that one. Scrap that one. But, I mean, the majority of his stuff, I would say the better than 90% of what he's produced, has that quality. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, my rides here was not the hit, (laughs) hit in quotes, uh, that life will kill you was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest 
laugh of the podcast yeah. right there. Yeah, hit. That really big hit. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, what was it? The summer of 2002, so who would number Number 94 on the charts. Yeah, <laughs> calling in to TRL, kids. It's Warren Zevon. I want to hear uh, my shit's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, shit. The sales for this record dipped, and the critical reception was mixed. I didn't mention this, but critical reception to Life Will Kill You was along the lines of what your feelings about it were. They loved it. The critical reaction to this CD, uh, less so. And unfortunately, because of kind of the backslide in sales, when Zevon went to his label to ask them to give him a band to tour behind the record, they said no. And he got very frustrated because he said, hey, last time I went out on the road as a solo artist to save you guys money, now I have a project that I feel should be backed up by a band. Come on, a little give and take here. And they just denied him. So he just refused to tour outright, which, of course, meant sales would continue to stay low. Good on him, though. Sticking by his guns, absolutely. Fuck the label. <laughs> Always. <laughs> the man, fuck the man. Yeah. Come on. Well, in the summer of 2002, they did convince him to play a couple of festival dates in Canada. They found him some folk fests. So his final concert that was open to the public, at least, was at the Edmonton Folk Festival which was in the summer of 2002. And sadly, just a couple of months later, he would get some news that would change his life. Ultimately, he was frustrated with the end result with my rides here. I think he was happy with the music, but he saw the project as a whole basically as a flop. And he wanted to get to work right away on the next album. But I think in at that point in time, he didn't realize just how motivated he would have to be because on August 28th, 2002, he was diagnosed with pleural mesothelioma. Was there any indication of how he contracted? That's a very specific kind of lung cancer mm -hmm. that's only really related to uh, exposure to asbestos. Correct. Like, how did he get that? <laughs> His son, Jordan, suggested that it probably came about because of his childhood. Like being, being in like a housing project yeah. or something like that? Okay. Well, now what did not help is that Zevon had a well-known phobia of doctors. And even though he had felt symptoms of this cancer for like several months, he did not go to see one until basically his friends and family were begging him to go to get checked out, and he went to a doctor who he knew personally, and he said the only upside of that day is that he got the bad news, and then he got the rest of the bad news, that it wasn't treatable, and that he only had three months to live, all in the same day. So there wasn't any waiting for test results, he just got it all dumped on him on that day, August 28th, 2002. He put out a statement to the public announcing his diagnosis, and it included him saying, quote, I'm okay with it, but it'll be a drag if I don't make it till the next James Bond movie comes out. <laughs> so here we have the praxis of two of our favorite things. Yes. Which is classic rock and fucking James Bond. Like, yes. we, we did it. Yes. He loved Bond. He sure did. Uh. And what's cool about him saying that is that the Bond producers picked up on that quote 
and gave him an advanced screening of the newest Bond film at the time, which was Die Another Day. Yeah. That had only ever been done before, back in the 60s, when President John F. Kennedy requested an advanced screening of From Russia with Love. First of all, JFK got much better of a Bond movie. <laughs> Let's die another day is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, you got to see the one with the invisible car. Uh, and Halle Berry. Yeah, the Aston Martin Vanquisher. The yeah. Shit, that thing. God, that God, such a horrendous movie. When his diagnosis was made public, all of the media and music industry people that had basically ignored him for 20 years all came out of the woodwork to do interviews with him, get back in touch with him, you know, all this. And... He was more than happy to give many of them the cold shoulder. There's a great clip in the VH1 documentary about him where his assistant says, Hey, uh, the New Yorker wants to do a piece on you. And he responds, Too late? Yeah. Thumb your fucking nose, Adam. Like, too little too late. Right. Here's the thing. It's not like other musicians and artists and people in the industry didn't recognize his greatness. It's just like the popular outlets ignored it. Now, one media outlet he absolutely made time for was David Letterman, and he appeared as the only guest for the full hour on the October 30th, 2002 episode of Late Show with David Letterman, in which he came out, did an interview with Letterman, and then performed three songs. When he came out on stage, Paul Schaefer and the band played I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, (laughs) which absolutely delighted him. You can see him smiling in the clip, which is great. The first thing he says was... Well, first of all, let me say that I I might have made a a tactical error in not going to a physician for 20 years. (laughs) I see. All right. It was one of those phobias that really didn't pay off. (laughs) The man's hilarious. Yeah, he stays funny through the whole thing. Like, he has a very disarming sense of humor, and I think it comes back to that that old idiom, like, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Yes. The only way to deal with this. And I know it's an emotional night, but I'm surprised Letterman wasn't a little more hip to that. Letterman seems so choked up and seems to be barely getting through it on his end and doesn't quite laugh in the way that you can tell Warren wants him to laugh or is hoping he'll laugh. I don't know. You know, that's a hard position for Letterman to be into. And it's so interesting because Letterman even says to uh, Zivon, "It's tough." Well, it means you better get your dry cleaning done on special. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, when when I first heard about this, I I think that you were in in touch with uh, Paul's assistant. You actually had a conversation with him, and and he said it was the the most bizarre thing, kind of the, the stunning revelation of this. But yet Warren was making jokes just like that. Now, how is that possible? I, I'm not sure I could make jokes like that if I had had I'm that sure info. You, you think so? I know you would. Really? Yeah. And like, it's just so illustrative again of Zivon. What a what a goddamn mensch. Yeah. So, well, one of the quotes that was really a takeaway from the interview is he says, "You're reminded to enjoy every sandwich and every minute of mm-hmm. playing in the, with the guys and and being with the kids and everything." The phrase, enjoy every sandwich, has become one of those signature lines from him. And it's interesting that that was never in one of his songs, but it's identified with him in the same way that, like, lyrics or song titles would be. And it was just a, a brief line in the interview. 
He also acknowledged uh, Letterman by saying, You know, Dave's the best friend my music has ever had. And I think in the same way, it was really cool of him putting Letterman on a CD. It's actually, I think, more important to acknowledge Letterman to his face, you know, in front of, you know, his audience. The great advocacy that Letterman really did, because Warren's early career is really propped up by his musical contemporaries. But in the 80s and onward, Letterman is the guy who champions him in the later years. Because Warren had burned uh, all the old bridges. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I will say the Enjoy Every Sandwich is, I think, a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, it's it's very universal. Everybody knows exactly what he means by that. After this interview, he played a couple of songs. He played Mutineer, Genius, and David Letterman's favorite song of his, or at least one of them, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. And this would mark his final public performance of his music. After the show, Letterman came to talk to him in his dressing room, and Warren was putting his guitar in a case and closing it up. He stood up, handed the guitar case to Letterman, said, here, take care of this for me. And uh, Letterman says that he immediately started sobbing. That actually makes me want to cry a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm actually like a little bit teary-eyed because you read the book. I didn't read it. Now you're telling me this. I actually, that's a little bit, get a little sobby, Oh, man. yeah. That's a little, that's hard, man. Well, it's not going to get any easier because we are going to get into the final album of Warren's career. It was called The Wind. And when Zevon got his diagnosis, he knew immediately that he wanted to make one last record. That became his priority number one, like, that day. He had all his friends and family telling him, like, you know, you could go on a vacation, you could live however you want to live. And he said, no, I want to get a record out before I die. And at the time, he thought he only had three months. Now, in the past, he's made records in less than three months before, so he thought he could do it again. And another great quote, he says to his manager, he gave very clear instructions. He said, quote, We have to go into showbiz mode. I'm giving you permission to use my illness in any way that you see fit to further my career right now. First of all, that's very funny. It's great. And secondly, it's also very clear-eyed about what show business and Hollywood is all about. How much of that do you think is a direct result of the fact that he was raised by, like, a low-level enforcer in the mafia? (laughs) I think quite a bit. I mean, I think he didn't have any illusions. And I think his whole career, you know, he saw how cynical Hollywood was. I think he saw all these people coming out of the woodwork to get back in touch with him. And I think he probably thought, oh, you want to exploit the fact that your readers are interested in the fact that I only got a couple of months? Well, I'm going to exploit that fact, too. And I'm going to do that by picking who among you can actually help me instead of, say, the New Yorker. Right. (laughs) And the end result was one of his best records. His focus was sharp. His usual collaborators, songwriting partners, and musicians that usually played with them, they all brought their A-game. And he finally had this return to form where his rock star buddies showed up again. So this album is kind of a throwback to that era when his album was full of a who's who of the music industry. 
So I'm just going to go through a couple of the people that showed up for him, and then we'll talk about some of the songs here. Most famously, he had a duet with Bruce Springsteen on a song called Disorder in the House. Springsteen also played a guitar solo on that track, and the guitar solo blew up the amp once he was done playing. Like, Springsteen came in, played guitar so fucking hard, it blew out the amp. <laughs> and then it was done. They used that take. So that amp's final hours were to service a Bruce Springsteen guitar solo, which is the solo you hear on that track. How awesome is that? For the record, if you're an amp, that's the way you want to go. Right? That is absolutely the way you want to go. That's a dream. Okay, we'll come back to a couple of these here. Very on the nose, but not in a way that I think would make you roll your eyes. He covered Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door, which is one of those songs where you might think, God, this is a little too obvious. But then you listen to the track, and it's just like, that doesn't matter. It is so heartfelt and so heartbreaking that I think it's definitely more gut-wrenching than the original. I don't know if I'd say it's better. I don't like to get into that what's better all the time, but it's more emotional. It delivers more of a punch, I think, than Bob's original. Certainly more than uh, Eric Clapton or Guns N' Roses. <laughs> no, it's... it's well, yes. No, it's, it's very similar to what we talked about with um, Back in the High Life. It's not better or worse, but it's a, it was a very different interpretation. Yeah. A more literal interpretation. Well, yeah, because the guy's looking at death and like a... Like a <laughs> you know? Well, Dylan, Dylan is writing basically for a cowboy movie. He's soundtracking exactly. a death. So it's a fictional death. Warren is taking that and being like, no, this is a real one. That guy... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes it yeah. a lot heavier. Like I listened to this, and I just about teared up when I was listening to it. And this is 20 years old. It still lands very powerful. So I'd say an inspired choice to include on the record. Bob does not show up to play on it, but Bob did hear about Warren's diagnosis and started playing Mutineer along with actually a couple of other Zevon tracks in concert during his tour, Zevon did get a chance to see Bob play. They talked backstage, which I think was very emotional for Zevon. And as he was at that show, Bob played Mutineer and Lawyers, Guns, and Money and, and then something else. So that, I think, put Warren over the moon that his hero was paying tribute to him. We know that Zevon was a had great respect for Bob Dylan. I believe his extremely. I believe his his quote was something to the effect of he basically created my job. Correct? Yes, that is his quote about Bob. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a mutual respect because like we said in our first episode, when Dylan rattled off a list of songwriters that were his favorites, Zevon was among those names. Okay, a couple of other heavy hitters on this record. Don Henley and Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles do backing vocals on the track She's Too Good For Me. Tom Petty and Mike Campbell from The Heartbreakers show up to play guitar and record vocals for the party song on the album called The Rest of the Night. Emmy Lou Harris was not able to attend the sessions, but she did send in a vocal track to be used on the song Please Stay. 
And that was done at Warren's request. He didn't want anyone else to sing that part. He wanted Emmy Lou specifically, so she was able to do that for him. And honestly, my favorite appearance on the record, Joe Walsh, also from the Eagles, shows up and delivers a just classic Joe Walsh guitar solo on the track, Rub Me Raw. Yeah, absolutely. I love the show, Joe Walsh, man. <laughs> I know you do, too. I know you really do. I love Joe Walsh. Yes. <laughs> and the story from him on that song is he only recorded the guitar solo, I think, twice. And he said to Warren and the other guys in the studio, I can do it differently, but I can't do it better than what he had just recorded. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay, then we'll use this one. <laughs> And that's one of kind of a Joe Walsh signature line. That's like one of the best quotes I've ever heard. That's yeah. fantastic. I mean, yeah. it's different, but I can't do it better. Yes. <laughs> uh, I said that to a girl a few nights ago. Right. <laughs> it fits. <laughs> it, it, it fits in many scenarios. Oh, very many scenarios. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Before we get to perhaps the most important song on the record. Were any of these that I've mentioned among your favorites? I mean, this is another one where I don't think there are any weak tracks on this at all. No. But what were the the tracks that really stood out for you? I love Dirty Life and Times. Yeah, I think opener. I think it's a it's a fantastic song. Yeah, the opener is great. To your point, Knocking Heaven's Door is great. I, I will say for for Dirty Life and Times, there are some lyrics in there where some days I feel like my shadows casting. Yeah, that track to me felt like the most on brand Zivon mm-hmm. song. That one felt like this should have been back on Excitable Boy. You know what I mean? No, definitely. I agree with you 100%. It's got a, it's got that vibe. You know, gets a little lonely, folks. You know what I mean? I'm looking for a woman with low self-esteem. <laughs> is problematic. It's problematic. Right? Yeah, but sure. you got to leave this in. Because, like, here's the thing. Yeah. Zevon was problematic. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So Problematic or not, it's fucking funny. Oh, it's very funny. Yeah. And you know exactly, here's the thing. You know exactly what he means. Yes. We all know exactly what he means yeah. when he says that. It's a cool song. So there's a lot of great tracks on this album, but I think the agreed upon standout is the album closer, Keep Me In Your Heart. That is the closing track on the record, and it is very much his farewell, not just to his immediate family and friends, but to his fans, to to everybody. It's a goodbye song, and it's one of the most gut-wrenching, beautiful tracks I've ever heard. This is another song that, if you're really listening to it, you should probably be tearing up, because I can't think of many songs that are more emotionally gripping when you know what state he was in when he was recording it. Especially because he wasn't recording it with the sessions for all of these other songs. You know, I'm kind of skipping over some of this stuff, but most of these sessions with the celebrities and the rock stars, these were all at, like, Billy Bob Thornton's house, and they were partying, and it was in the immediate aftermath of his diagnosis. He recorded Keep Me In Your Heart after all of that, after the Christmas holiday, In early 2003, his buddies were on his case to finish the song because they knew how critical it was for the record, but his health was declining. 
So he recorded this track at home. His engineer came into the house, hung a mic from the rafters, basically, so he could sit comfortably in a couch, because that was the only way he was going to get that vocal out. And he did it in three takes, and that was all they needed. Shadows are falling, and I'm running out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. Thank God that they got that on record because that track, more than anything else, is what makes this among his best work, at least as far as I'm concerned. I think that's one of his best songs ever. Now, the recording for Keep Me In Your Heart reminds me... Have you heard the story of uh, Freddie Mercury recording the last Queen record? No. One of the songs on that record was called The Show Must Go On, and... He was very much in his final months, and he was with the band, and Brian May was saying to him, I don't know, I don't think you're going to be able to do this. This is this requires a really strong vocal, and you know, you're in rough shape. Something to that effect. Yeah. And Freddie Mercury defiantly <laughs> took a shot of vodka and said, Oh, I'll get it done, darling and nailed the vocal in like one try and it is a fucking belter of a track. <laughs> Show must go on. Show must go on. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's just like that was a last gasp of strength and it's fucking epic and in the same way that it fits for the sort of bombast that Queen is known for, that Mercury has this one last grand song that very fits in Queen's catalog, to me, Keep Me In Your Heart is that one last blast of emotional power that Zevon had through his whole discography, and it's like he's summoning his final musical energy to get that on the record. And I think that really adds to the legend that is one Zevon. Agree. Side note. Yep. I want my last words to now be, oh, I'll get it done, darling. Because <laughs> that is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do with Ward Zevon. That's all, that's Freddie Mercury. But that yeah. is fucking phenomenal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's something like that. Uh, but I know Darling is in the quote. Oh, I love it. I love everything about that. Absolutely. One interesting thing about this timeline that I don't know that it matters to the grand scheme of things, but... As Warren was wrapping up these recording sessions, Johnny Cash was about to go into the studio for what would be his final recording sessions, and those guys would pass away within a week of each other. So kind of uh, an odd little parallel between, on de definitely on a different scale, but two icons of American music leaving this earth and ending their music career kind of right at the same time. And I didn't realize that, I guess, uh, you know, obviously, again, you read the book and I, I do no research or any sort of, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, despite being an English major, I don't read. Yeah. I, I didn't, um, I almost wonder, did Cash dying when he did affect the cultural impact of Zevon dying? I think so, because I actually remember Johnny Cash dying. I was in high school and even though I didn't know like a ton of his music, yeah. I remember being like, oh, man, that sucks. 
And I can tell you for sure, I had no idea that the guy who wrote Werewolves of London died that same week. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. All right. So real quick, just to wrap up, we're very lucky that the album did get completed because it almost didn't. Because one of the things that's an uncomfortable truth about Warren's last months is that he fell off the wagon. Or should I say he jumped off the wagon. He had been sober since uh, the mid-80s and was perfect about it. But once he got this diagnosis and he also started dealing with some pretty serious pain, he just was like, fuck it, I'm going to drink. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to party. Honestly, one thing that kind of looks shitty in hindsight is a lot of his rock star buddies and friends who he met later in life and didn't know like the old Warren definitely seemed to kind of encourage that because they wanted to be able to say they partied with the crazy Warren at least once before he went. That shit's a little gross. I don't know how I feel about Billy Bob Thornton and all this because he seemed to facilitate some of that. But in any case, this is a really hard thing to be a judge on. So I'm I'm not going to make any statements of judgment. But the fact was, is he did get off the wagon. He did start drinking again and he didn't drink in moderation. He went hard and he, it was old Warren again for a couple of months to the point that he risked not finishing the album because that he didn't drink. He didn't start drinking after the album was done. He started drinking during the sessions and he got really depressed over the holidays because he realized that this was going to be his last Christmas, his last New Year, and that hit him really hard. And that put the record on hiatus for a couple of weeks as his family helped him kind of get out of that. He did stabilize in early 2003. That's when they recorded Keep Me In Your Heart. And once the album was complete, he then did stay sober until the very end. That's nice. I mean, the only thing I'll say, and just just to add to this, is if there's a better time to drink really heavily than when you've been diagnosed with, like, three months to live. Yeah. I mean, I I can't, you know. But I see your point where it's, are you enabling? Are you on some level? It's like, at some point, you only have so much goddamn time. Yeah. Oh, it's a a horrible position to be in if you're not that guy because you don't want to... To be in a position of judgment. I don't know what I would do. Right. So we're not going to talk about, you know, if he was right or in the wrong. He should have been able to do whatever he wanted to do. And thankfully, thankfully, he did not actually jeopardize the album. They were able to get it done. As I said before, in his very final months, he did stay sober. At one point telling his girlfriend, I fought too hard not to go to God sober. Because in his... Last months, in his last years, actually, he had found some semblance of religion, and his sobriety of the later half of his life, I think, was a point of pride for him. Once he had stabilized after the holidays, he wanted to remain clean, because after that, his motivation for staying alive was he wanted to see the birth of his grandchildren. The Wind was released in August 2003, which was a year after he had received his initial diagnosis, so he had outlived his initial diagnosis. In the same week the album was released, VH1 aired a documentary called Warren Zevon Inside Out, which we have both watched. I would highly recommend anybody listening go check that out. You can see it on YouTube. And it's interesting because VH1 is another one of those media entities who had previously done him dirty. Just a couple of years before this, his management went to VH1 to inquire about having them do a Behind the Music episode about him, 
And they said no. And they kind of laughed his management right out of the office. So very interesting how things change a little bit and then they come crawling back. You just have to die, apparently. That's the... <laughs> that was kind of the lesson of the whole thing. The quote he has, he said he wanted to, to die before the Grammys so he would get a Grammy nomination. And he did! <laughs> yeah, he... What a sense of humor. He, he said the quote, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but he said something to the effect of, it's a hell of a living. You have to die just to let them know you're alive. Jesus, that's... God, that might be accurate for more things than just the goddamn Grammys, sure. unfortunately. Well, it, it was <laughs> particularly accurate for the Grammys because he got five Grammy nominations and two wins. One for Best Vocal from a duo group for Disorder in the House with Springsteen okay. and Best Contemporary Folk Album. So, nice. at long last, finally some acknowledgement from the Grammys. Also, the album was a hit, and I mean a hit, a proper hit. Oh. It was his highest charting album of his whole career, except for Excitable Boy. So, that chart success that had evaded him for so much of his career, he finally got to see at the very end. He did live long enough to see the birth of his twin grandsons. Excellent. Along with... Obviously, his final album, which was his primary goal. And, of course, he was able to see that last James Bond movie. Warren Zevon passed away in his sleep on September 7th, 2003, at age 56, in his home in Los Angeles. His last words were, please stay to his girlfriend. And she did. And he passed peacefully and gracefully. That's fucking heartbreaking somehow. Please stay. Yeah, he wanted some. Con- he wanted oh, shit. He well, wanted her to be physically with well, him in the last moments. And honestly, that's the stuff that Ugh. the book "I'll Sleep When I'm Dead" opens with. So if you read this book, it really wallops you with the most emotional shit in the first couple of pages. It's it's brutal. So there you go. That's the dirty life and times of Warren Zevon. He was a rare breed, man. Yeah. If I may, a quote. From one of his good friends, Hunter S. Thompson. Okay. I think he is a, he's an example of a truly rare beast. Too weird to live and too rare to die. Absolutely. And he has not died in our hearts. We yes. keep him in our hearts. For a while. Uh, he'd like that yes he would he would like that yes he would yes he would also for a brief while let's talk about some of the covers that came out uh, in the 2000s see some of the other versions of his songs and and see what our reactions to them are when he was given the initial diagnosis Jackson Brown suggested instead of doing his own album that they should just have a tribute album put together and Zivon's response was Something to the effect of, tell Jackson to make a fucking tribute album for me after I'm dead. <laughs> Which is... The best. So perfect. So perfect. And so on brand. <laughs> and he did. Jackson did. You know? Good on him. Because Jackson and Warren were friends, but they had a tumultuous friendship. He stuck with them, though, at the end. That's Absolutely. The beautiful thing about it, yeah. Absolutely. He did. The tribute album was called Enjoy Every Sandwich, The Songs of Warren Zevon. That was released in 2004. There is a number of standout tracks. I'm just going to go through a few 
and you can tell me which ones uh, stood out to you. Uh, Don Henley opens the record with a cover of Searching for a Heart. Did not love it. Did not love it. <laughs> Adam Sandler, out of nowhere, does a version of Werewolves of London. It's surprisingly perfect. Yeah. I don't love Adam Sandler, but I guess he's got that right level of like that kind of comedic, like it made sense. It made total sense. I actually really like his cover. Sure. album uh steve earl did a version of reconsider me that is very much still alive steve earl not to be confused (laughs) with what you thought uh steve earl's uh status was a few episodes ago don't talk about (laughs) dead steve earl with me buddy oh boy it's a good that's a good cover it's a really good cover sure that actually is on the californication soundtrack yeah, and that was a show that was very much inspired by Zvon, right? Not only inspired by, I mean, like, it uses his music heavily, both covers and also original cuts from him. It's, uh, I think David Duchovny said something to the effect of, like, he was the patron saint of our show. And that's awesome to hear, because that's that media celebration of Zvon that he really didn't get. Yeah. Outside of... What, that one scene in The Color of Money? Like, he didn't get to see his stuff used on exactly. screen all that much. Exactly. A couple of other tracks here. Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt cover Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me together. I love that. That's it's a, a it's great a, it's a good. It's a really good cover. They included a live version of Bruce Springsteen playing My Rides here. He recorded that very shortly after Zevon died and covering famous songs by... Iconic artists shortly after they die is actually something Springsteen's made a little bit of a tradition out of when he's on tour. Jacob Dylan and the Wallflowers did a version of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. And in the lyrics, instead of singing, Dad, get me out of this, Jacob perhaps more appropriately sings, Warren, get me out of this. Lawyers, guns, and money. Warren, get me out of this. I know, I noticed that, and I just all I could think was like, you know, because his dad's Bob Dylan. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's a good cover, though, it really is. It's not a bad cover. Warren's son, Jordan, sings Studebaker, which was one I don't really remember. That was never released. Oh, so it's a, okay. No, 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 no. So it's unreleased, and I will say this to me, and maybe you're going to disagree with this, one of the highlights of the album. That song is great. I can't believe he didn't put it on our record. Like, it's a good song. Yeah, and very cool that Jordan went through the archives to find something yeah. like that. The other one that's also was an unreleased track was Billy Bob Thornton did a song called The Wind. The Wind was originally supposed to be on the album The Wind, but Zivon decided not to use it because the lyric that references The Wind he found a use for in another song. That song was Please Stay. And I'm going to quote from the liner notes on the 20th anniversary release of The Wind. Warren had another song called The Wind, but when he wrote the lyric, Will you stay with me until the end, when there's nothing left but you and me and the wind, he abandoned that song. He told us, never say in a song what you can say in a single line. Oh, shit. First of all, that's incredibly beautiful. Also, the fact now it's hitting me that his last words were, Please stay. Yeah. That's man. something, man. The feels are everywhere. Oh, shit. All right. 
<laughs> and the last one I'll highlight from this tribute album, they got a recording of Bob Dylan performing Mutineer from his tour. I was born to rock the boat. Some might think, but we will float. Grab your coat. Let's get out of here. You're my witness. That's an interesting presentation of that song. Dylan definitely sings it differently than Warren did. Oh, yeah. And I, I liked it, but I will say he sounded like he was winded. He sounded like he was struggling for breath. The Dylan, <laughs> the Dylan version is, uh, is not as good. I will say this. The Pixies version of Ain't That Pretty at All. I don't think you're a Pixies oh, fan. Yes. They perfectly match the tone of that song. That's a good match band. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, that's a very good match for that. Uh, And also, I I will say right now that the David Lindley and Ry Cooter cover of one of my personal favorite uh, Zevon tracks, uh, Monkey Wash, Donkey Rance, was pretty A-plus as well. Yeah, so this Enjoy Every Sandwich tribute album, I gotta say, this this fits in with Warren's discography. If you like the other records in, in Warren's catalog, you should check this one out, too. Yep. Sadly, none of these was a big radio hit, but we can talk about one song that was, because there is a track that was released in 2008 that included some work from Zevon that charted and sold more than anything in his entire career. And that, of course, was... It was 1989, my thoughts were short, my hair was long Caught somewhere between a boy and man A track called All Summer Long by an artist named Kid Rock. Who's that? (laughs) Yeah, Kid Rock sampled the piano intro of Werewolves of London for his stupid fucking All Summer Long song, which is also a tribute to Sweet Home Alabama. I don't know. I love Where Was London and I love Sweet Home Alabama, and I can't tell you how much I fucking hate this song, All Summer Long. So, in addition to hating that song, I'm going to be very clear. I have a level of just primordial hatred for Kid Rock. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it, it goes down to a, like, a part of me that's not even, like, it's like lizard brain. Yeah. I hate that motherfucker. That's all. Yeah, no, that's, that's all that needs to be said. I mean, I guess it, I mean, music and it. To speak to that hate, I mean, I guess it's only appropriate that he would bastardize yeah, uh, you know, a piece from one of our favorite guys, and and also succeed with that bastardization way more than the guy we love, because Warren never hit the same levels that Kid Rock did with that song. That was from the album called Rock and Roll Jesus. Just a really layer this on here. Even the name of the damn album is that the album name? Yeah, Rock and Roll Jesus. Yeah, is he the Rock and Roll Jesus? You know, I think you have to listen to it all the way through to find out. Well, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about some songs we actually all like right. before we get out of here real quick. What are your top five favorite songs of Warren Zevon from the 2000s? Oh, from the 2000s? Yeah. Do you want me to go first with you that? You go first with okay. that, yes. So I'm going to go first with that. My top five favorite 2000s Warren Zevon songs from the three albums we talked about today. Porcelain Monkey, Sacrificial Lambs, McGillicuddy's Reeks, 
Disorder in the house and keep me in your heart. Wow. I don't think we're going to have any overlap at all for the 2000s. Well, I think you really love Life Will Kill You, and I really love The Wind. So there's a sort of a seesaw thing going on there. No, definitely. I think so. For me, it's like probably ourselves to know. Yep. My shit's fucked up. Mm. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I I was in the house when the house burnt down is fantastic. Genius probably would be on the list, actually. I do really like Genius. And I think probably Dirty Life and Times after that. A good list for sure. Now, let's see. Can we go one bigger? Let's zoom out all the way. So for Zivon's whole career, can you pick five songs in no particular order that are cut above the rest? What are the elite tier top five Warren Zivon songs for you? So it's definitely Indifference of Heaven, Monkey Wash, Donkey Rents. Every time I say it, Mm -hmm. I laugh. (laughs) Ourselves to Know. Werewolves of London is an absolute rager. It should always be on every list. Yeah. And then Stand in the Fire. Oh, okay. Okay, from the live album. I dig it. Okay, mine, I think, are perhaps a little more conventional, but I'm going to agree with you on Werewolves of London. It's definitely on the list. Lawyers, Guns, and Money, that was always going to be on the list for me. Sentimental Hygiene and Splendid Isolation, both from the late 80s. And my fifth one, I'm going to go with Keep Me In Your Heart, which narrowly beats out Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me and Leave My Monkey Alone. (laughs) If you would put Leave My Monkey Alone on your best Zivon song list, I don't know if you'd make it out of here, buddy. Like, I just like, I don't even know. Like, I just like, I'd have to hail a lift and just uh, deny. uh, Yeah. yeah. I was tempted to just to see (laughs) that reaction. Christ. But no. And that's going to be it. Anything else to say? About our man, Mr. Rock and Roll, Warren Zevon. This is somebody who needs to be examined. They're teaching courses on fucking Dylan and Springsteen in schools. Yeah. They should be teaching courses on Zevon as well. I think so. I think it's stunning that he hasn't been acknowledged more, not just by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but just culture at large. I'm actually a little more annoyed that the Songwriters Hall of Fame haven't put him in. That seems more offensive to me than Rock Hall. But in any case, we've talked about Warren Zevon across four episodes now. This is going to serve as our finale of our examination of his discography as far as the podcast goes. But we are going to do more Zevon coverage in the near future. We are going to do a live stream. We're going to do a live stream for the first time with just you and me. We're going to rank... The Zivon albums from worst to best. I'm not sure when we'll do that, but uh, once we have a date picked out, we'll post that on social media, so be sure to follow us there. And we're also going to start seeking out guests to have on perhaps people from Zivon's personal life, perhaps authors who've written about him, perhaps fellow fans. We're going to find some people who are going to join us for conversations that are Zivon-centric. Not sure what that's going to look like yet, but that will be coming up later this year. And, of course, now that we are coming to the end of this songwriter series, we're going to do another one. You can bet your ass we're going to do another one. Not sure who that's going to be yet. It will not be Gordon Lightfoot. We floated the idea of doing Gordon Lightfoot. I don't. I do not want to do Gordon Lightfoot. Well, there's so many possibilities. We're talking about Bruce Springsteen. You know, my dark horse is Jimmy Buffett. You know, who knows? Listeners, 
if it's Gordon Lightfoot, it is done under duress. And I need you <laughs> to find me and, and help me, okay? Please, please post comments about who you'd like <laughs> to hear us talk about uh, next time. But uh, down the line, we're definitely going to do another songwriter series. Okay, otherwise, the next episode for this podcast for me is going to be a solo episode. I'm going to do a deep dive on the discography and career of the Southern rock band Molly Hatchet. So that's going to be exciting. That's coming up. Uh, I also have a couple of more interviews and collaborations in the pipeline. Haven't nailed all the details down just yet, so I can't announce who they are. But information about that will be posted on the social media pages soon, so be sure to find us there. Also, check out my appearance on the Set Lusting Bruce podcast. I was a guest on the Bruce Springsteen fan podcast, Set Lusting Bruce, with host Jesse Jackson. He is a fellow Pantheon podcaster, so you can find that podcast as well as this one on Pantheon Podcasts, so that was a lot of fun. Otherwise, I just need to cite the two books I've mentioned in all of our episodes, because they were such great help. The first one is I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times, which was put together by Warren's ex-wife, Crystal Zivon, uh, which is an incredible piece of work, honestly one of the best music bios I've ever read. And another one that is absolutely no slouch is Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon by C.M. Cushions. This one is a bit more of a traditional biography, but it is also top-notch. Chris, uh, I can't believe it. We did it. We are here at the end of Zevon. Thank you so much for joining me over these months. I hope you had a good time. I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much, as always, buddy. All right. And we are going to play us out with the one song that showed up on both of our top five of all time lists. Which is the most basic fucking Zevon song. But God damn it, it's a, it's a razor, isn't it, brother? Here we go. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal, because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.